Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present part two of our conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of the opening statements and the first week of witness testimony in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On our last episode, we continued our coverage of Danny Masterson's retrial with Jury Duty creator Carrie Antholis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega discussing the attorney's opening statements and initial witness testimonies in the case. Here is part two of that conversation. During that cross-examination, Jane Doe 3 took care to explain her answers and why her answers had slightly shifted over time and paid particular attention to this idea of the precision of her testimony. Could you explain that for us a bit? Sure. This is a big part of the first trial was that for all the witnesses, but um, with Jane Doe 3, by the time she, she had talked to her husband about it and he had convinced her that the way she described what she was describing was rape. And she decided she called a rape hotline and then she finally decided to go to the police. At that time, in late 2016, she and her husband were living in Austin, Texas. And so she went to the Austin police and they did an interview and then called the LAPD. LAPD came out and did this extensive in-person interview in Austin. And there's videotape of that. And one of the issues the defense raises is the way she described a couple of those incidents in that video is different than the way she talks about it today in the first trial and then in, and in this trial. And this time, it, she really had a better answer for that than in the first trial. She was explaining, look, I'm new to this process. I didn't even know I could correct the detective if she said something. And this is one of the odd things about this LAPD detective is, for example, I mentioned in the November 2001 incident, the charge incident, she had yanked on his hair. He had responded by hitting her in the face. And as she was saying this time, look, I said the word hit four times. He hit me. And then Reyes, you can hear on the recording, said, oh, he slapped you. And ever since then... There's been this controversy. Was it a hit? Was it a slap? And the prosecution has tried to point out it was Reyes who introduced the idea that it was a slap and that it was Jane Doe 3 had said it was a hit. And it was, she said it was kind of like a half closed fist. It wasn't like a, she said he didn't punch her. It wasn't a full on punch, but kind of a half closed fist and he hit her jaw. And so that this is where she's saying, look, I didn't even know at that time, I'm new to this, that I could have corrected her, that it was my place to correct a detective who says something wrong. 
I thought that was a pretty good response. Also, you know, she may have, you know, Jane Doe 3 may have been new to that at that time. But Detective Reyes wasn't. And this is one of those odd things where it's, why is she putting words into these women's mouths? Why is she introducing these terms that the women didn't say? And you can see why these women got frustrated with her pretty quickly. That brings us to the end of day three of the trial. On day four, we had the conclusion of the cross of Jane Doe three, and that had a major development. Can you tell us the highlights of the conclusion of Jane Doe three's testimony? Sure. So at one point, Sean Hawley mentioned a couple of emails that Jane Doe three sent Masterson in 2007. So that would be six years after the incident, five years after they broke up, still some nine years before she started to report this incident. And she took her through the first email. You definitely remember sending this email? Yes. I think it was a minor thing. But the second email, though, Sean Hawley said she wanted to read it out loud in court. And Judge Almeida was like, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to publish it and then ask questions from it. In other words, enter it as an exhibit. You can put it up on the overhead, put it up on the screen, show it to Jane Doe 3. Once that's formally done and it's an exhibit that's been uh, accepted into the case, then you can ask her what's on it. You're not going to just read it out loud. So she put this second email up on the overhead. On those, there's a there's a monitor that's on the wall above the witness. So that's I'm in the back row. The press is in the back row. I'm as far away from it as I can be. Started out, hey, Dan, but I just couldn't see the body of the email from where I was sitting. And Jane Doe 3 looked at it and Holly wanted to start asking questions. And Jane Doe 3 says, well, wait a minute. I have an issue with this. And she started talking about how she recognized some of it, but other parts, she said, I didn't write these other parts. Some This email has been altered. And I can tell you the reaction in the room you know, people were kind of like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? It just felt odd and couldn't read it. But based on Holly's questions about it, the sense I got was that, you know, Masterson had begun dating Bijou Phillips, actress Bijou Phillips in 2004. They were married in 2011. So it was about halfway in that period when he was dating her. Jane Doe 3 had apparently sent this email. It had some sort of negative information about Bijou. X is warning her ex about his current girlfriend. I don't know. We never really got into the email because Jane Doe 3 was saying, this is not what I wrote. And so there was this allegation of what? Hacking? What was it? And so they never really got into that email. But the, the upshot was the judge ruled that the jury can decide if they think this email was altered or not. But her ruling was the defense had now opened the door to allegations of hacking because all these women, you know, allege that they've been harassed and surveilled and stalked and hacked since they came forward. And all of that was supposed to stay out of this trial. And so this was, I don't know, it seemed like it ended up being a major blunder for the defense because we never really did get into the contents of that email. But it did allow the prosecution on redirect to talk about hacking. Also, in that redirect, D.A. Mueller was asking her about that. And she started talking about various forms of harassment. Judge Olmedo admonished her, look, the defense has opened the door to hacking allegations. Just stick to that. And she had specific examples of where she believed her phones had been tampered with, her email 
account. And I remember this from the first trial, Carrie. It's talking about, you know, these, this is the third time these women have had to go, you know, under oath and talk about these terrible incidents. When she's talking about the harassment, which she claims is going on to the current day, this is what really seems to upset her, is that she and her husband and their two children have been subjected to this kind of harassment. And you could see she was getting really upset. Last, in the first trial, she had a full-blown panic attack and they had to stop for a while. This time she started to have one. She was, she had the panic breathing. She was crying. And so the judge allowed her to leave. Holly said she only had one last question on recross and the judge allowed her to go. So a little bit of drama um, in that, in that last uh, bit of Jane Doe 3's appearance, which, uh, which ended just before lunch on that day. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We resume the conversation between Carrie Antholis and Tony Ortega with Carrie's question to Tony about the next witness in the Masterson retrial. The next witness was Dr. Barbara Ziv, who testified as a blind expert in the trial. I, I believe that she also testified in the Weinstein trial, which we covered last year. Can you tell us about Barbara Ziv's testimony and how you think she came across and what salient information she lent to this trial? You know, the first trial, they had an expert named Dr. Mindy, Mc Mindy Mechanic. I thought she was very good. Dr. Barbara Ziv, I think, is a little more high profile. She was in the Weinstein trial. She's been in some other big, big trials. I think she's a little bit more well-known. Uh, but essentially, it was the same as what Dr. Mechanic was talking about. And that is what they call counterintuitive victim behaviors. Because, you know, both these experts testified that research shows that women react differently to being attacked by a stranger and being attacked by somebody they know or even somebody they're in a relationship with. And that when it's someone they know, that they will react in ways that seem counterintuitive. So, for example, they almost always have post-attack contacts with the person. They may even continue a relationship with the person. So Dr. Barbara Ziv went through these. Uh, she talked about that there are many rape myths about how many People turn, you know, actually report their rapes and whether they even think of it as a rape, especially if it's somebody they know. And she went through these sort of misconceptions people have about it because people tend to think of when they hear the word rape, they tend to think of it as a stranger jumping out of the bushes with a knife, you know, taking a woman somewhere and raping her knife point and that the woman is going to fight. But actually, it's it's more often somebody they know and more often the, the woman will not resist, at least not in the way you think they will will. They have more subtle sort of ways of refusing. Really interesting details. And like I said, I think it was very similar to what Dr. Mindy Mechanic said in the first trial. 
I think Dr. Ziv is a little bit more compelling about it. I thought she did a very good job. You know, the problem is in the first trial, we, we learned that the jury virtually ignored it. And that's the thing is you, you never know with the jury whether they're going to pay attention to that or not. I think, you know, I think she did a very good job, but are they going to listen to her? And what Deputy D.A. Mueller did when he questioned her, she's, you mentioned that she's a blind expert. What that means is she purposely knows nothing about the case. She hasn't read anything about the case. She hasn't reviewed any files. She hasn't interviewed anybody. She doesn't know anything about this particular case. She's speaking in general about what research shows about how women react in this type of a situation. And so Mueller was then asking her hypotheticals, you know, if somebody's in a relationship for six years, so, you know, he's he's basically asking her about what happened in this case so she she can then respond. And in each case, when, when he would ask her about specifics, she would describe things that were uncannily just like what these women ended up doing. I mean, I know what the prosecution is hoping is that the jury sees that and says, wow, okay. So even though it seems counterintuitive what they might have done, so, for example, with Jane Doe 3, she went through these Scientology ethics handlings and then she ultimately broke up. She was still friends with him. She even ended up sleeping with him three times after they had broken up. But then Dr. Ziv doesn't know anything about that. But, you know, Mueller's asking her about those types of situations and she's describing things almost exactly the way Jane Doe 3 had. So that's the impression they want the jury to get is that what these women are describing, as much as it might seem unusual, actually fits research about how women react. That was a very helpful explanation. Moving on to the final day of the week, day five of the trial, we had Jane Doe 3's husband. Can you tell us the highlights of his testimony? Sure. Cedric is really electric on the witness stand. He's a musician. He's a performer, really bright guy, and just comes off as so credible and really heartfelt about what his wife is going through. The same thing as in the first trial. And this time he had a few more details than he did the first time around. And the defense loves to jump on that. It's like, why are you telling us this now? Why didn't you tell it before? But he had really interesting responses to that. So, for example, one detail was that at one point, Danny got Jane Doe 3 into Scientology. And then when Jane Doe 3 and Cedric got together years later, she asked him to do some things in Scientology. And they ended up going to some Scientology events together. And at one event, they were seated right behind the Masterson family. And Cedric is recounting this and said, yes, at one point, Danny's mother turned around and gave us a look. <laughs> well, Danny's mother's in the gallery at the trial, right? And Cohen was all over him about this. Like, why? You never said that before. You didn't say that to the detectives. And at one point, Cedric said, look, this is go time. I'm doing my best to remember everything I can. You know, if I remember something from that event, why won't I say it right now when I'm on the stand at a trial? It, wow, you know, things like that. I think that's very effective for the jury. I think he makes you feel like what it's like to be in that chair. Another thing that was really remarkable was on direct examination. They know from the first trial that one of the potholes that they're trying to avoid is that I first broke the news of this investigation of the LAPD in 2017. Two years later, they were still waiting for the DA's office to do something. They were frustrated. And at that point in, in the summer of 2019, the three women and Cedric and another woman sued civilly the Church of Scientology and Danny Masterson, not about the rapes, but about the campaign of harassment they alleged that they've been experiencing 
since coming forward. The civil lawsuit is about harassment. That's on hold while the criminal trial is going on. And so in the first trial, Cohen repeatedly would ask them, you're suing for money, right? In order, in other words, to give the impression to the jury that this whole thing is just a way for them to make money. And the women had struggled with that question in the first trial, Carrie. They just, they say, no, we're suing to stop the harassment, but it sort of caught them off guards a little bit. Well, they're ready for that this time, right? And so Anson, the deputy DA, asked Cedric, you're suing civilly, right? Yes. You're asking for monetary damages, right? And he said, my children need therapy. Yes, I'm suing for money. <laughs> you know, it was like, we have targets on our back. Yes, I'm suing for money. It was so refreshing to hear that answer because, look, that's that's the justice system we have in this country. If you sue someone civilly, the remedy is generally a cash payment. So I just thought it was a, one of the strongest moments in the trial. That was really something. Well, you know, that's particularly impactful in the context of Jane Doe 3's testimony about the harassment that she's experienced. And having seen her emotional response to that harassment, that her husband follows up with testimony about the family's need for therapy, not just the kids, but implicitly his wife. Right. I mean, they're alleging that Scientology poisoned their dog. I mean, th this is something they've been living with for years. And, and this is what really upsets her on the stand. And so you're asking Cedric, oh, well, you're asking for money, aren't you? And he's like, you're darn right we are. I mean, you know, they've been going through this trauma for years. So I just thought that was a really refreshing answer. I thought he did really well, just like he did in the first trial. And, you know, he's he's there to corroborate that she told him in 2010 or 11 about what had happened with Masterson. And he's he told her, look, what, what, what happened to you was rape. And ultimately, that's what, you know, convinced her to go to the police. By the way, is the dog poisoning evidence going to come in in this trial? Probably not in this trial unless they somehow open the door. You know, they did open the door to hacking allegations, but not that kind of harassment. Um, there's no question that Jane Doe 3 and Cedric's dog was intentionally poisoned. The rat poison was put inside hamburger and thrown over their fence. Whoever did that intended to harm that dog. You know, the tough question is who threw that over their fence and how do you connect that to the Church of Scientology? That's going to be their burden in the civil lawsuit. But I don't I don't know that they would even get to that allegation in this trial. Uh, somehow the defense opened up the door to all forms of harassment, and they, I think they'd be unwise to do so. So the week ended with the beginning of Jane Doe 1 testifying. Can you remind our listeners of her story and tell us the highlights of her day five testimony? Sure. So Jane Doe One was an acquaintance of Masterson, and she was a second generation Scientologist. And she described how her circle of friends and his circle of friends had various intersections, and she'd known him for a while. And her charged incident is from April 2003. But, you know, as in the first trial, they first wanted to back up and explain that there was an incident in September 2002. So just a few months after Jane Doe 3 and Danny had broken up in September 2002, Jane Doe 1 and Danny were at a bar, they've been drinking, and they ended up back at his place and had sex. And in the first trial, this was presented as, well, she had gotten drunk and she didn't expect it. And she was kind of laughing and saying, this is stupid. We shouldn't do this. And that the biggest effect of it was that it caused some tension in their circle of friends. 
that their friends were really unhappy that this had happened. And she didn't really name who those friends were, but that this was presented as a precursor to what happened six months later in the actual incident. And that there was some suggestion that Danny still had some lingering resentment over how that that first incident had, you know, affected their friends. There was some suggestion in the first trial that this may have motivated him to be so sort of angry and violent in the actual charged rape incident in April 2003. This time, they went into a lot more detail about the September 2002. For the first time I have ever heard, there was a drugging implication this time, Carrie. There was nothing like that the first trial. This time, there was an implication that she was drugged in that first incident. Also, it was made much more to be to sound like an actual rape and not a consensual thing. And now, this time, she actually named who her close friends were who were very angry that it happened, and that's Lisa Marie Presley. In the first trial, the prosecution had wanted to bring in Lisa Marie to testify that she was a close friend to Jane Doe 1 and that... Scientology had instructed her to try to convince Jane Doe 1 not to go to the police. This was one of the biggest surprises of the first trial. It suggested some kind of obstruction of justice by the church itself. Lisa Marie Presley was willing to come down and testify to that, but the judge didn't allow it because it was more about the church than about Danny and his guilt or innocence. Really amazing day in the first trial. And then, of course, subsequent to that, Ms. Presley has died. So this time, Jane Doe 1 actually mentioned her as her close friend who was very upset that that September 2002 incident had happened. So all right away, her testimony is different and in interesting ways. And then she just began to testify to the April 2003 incident about how she arrived at his house after a complex evening and that he had given her a drink and she'd been suspiciously intoxicated and he threw her in his jacuzzi. And that's about as far as we got Friday afternoon. So when we pick up on Monday morning, we'll get into the actual allegations of rape that happened uh, a little bit later that night. And in your reporting about day five, you seem to indicate that this was the one day where Reinhold Mueller started to flag a little bit. This was the one day where he wasn't as sharp as he was earlier in the week. Yeah, I don't want to give the impression he wasn't sharp. It's just that the circumstances of Jane Doe 1 ending up at Danny Mashton's house that night, April 24th, 25th, 2003, are so complex. I have struggled to keep it all straight, Gary, about, oh, they were going to go to Bree's house and then take her to the airport in the morning, but first they went to this party and then they separated and then she needed to get the keys from this other person. It's mind-boggling. It's so complex. And this time, for some reason, I think Mueller really wanted to get every little detail down and the judge was just exasperated. She's like, get to the incident. You know, that was the admonition on that day. It was not that he was flagging. He's been doing a very good job. But that for whatever reason, they had decided to go into such microscopic detail in the hours leading up to the incident that the judge just said, come on, just get to get to what we're here for. You know, so that was the one criticism he got from her that day. Got it. Well, Tony, thank you again for covering a very long and exhausting week. And we look forward to having you back to talk more about this trial and to hearing more about the differences and similarities to the first trial. You bet, Carrie. It's always fun to talk to you about this stuff. And one more time, tell us where we can find you out there and get even more in-depth and more colorful coverage of the Danny Masterson trial. 
Yes, please sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com. I put out three or four reports every day from the courtroom, and you'll get that report within seconds after I put it out. I just basically try to get down what everybody in the courtroom says that day. And I, I, I do have to tell, I'm not the court reporter. I don't get every single thing down, but I, I get a you know good you know portion of, of what's said in all the testimony and all the arguments. And I think people really appreciate it because there's no cameras in the courtroom. This is your best opportunity to see what's going on. Tony Ortega, thanks again. Thank you. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Please stay tuned to this feed for continued coverage of the Masterson retrial. And, starting in May, look for Season 8 of Jury Duty, covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholas. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.